You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast this month in association with RehabMyPatient.com and this is session 89. Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. I'm Jack Chu. Delighted to be delivering this episode. Really been looking forward to it quite some time as me and Rob Goodwin get into in a second. Before we do, uh, a word from our sponsor. Um, we've been using rehabmypatient.com for quite some time now. It's really applicable across the board in practice. But I thought one of the things that was interesting about this episode, which is about all things first contact practice and the UK policies to bring physiotherapists to the first contact role in GP primary care predominantly. Um, and rehabmypatient.com is quite uniquely placed as exercise prescription software to really help with that because of its ease of use and the speed of which it can deliver um, advice sheets and, and exercise programs to them. So I thought I'd just get Tim from Rehab My Patient, who's its founder and director, to tell us a little bit about the software and how it's being used in this context. Tim, thanks for joining me briefly at the start of this podcast. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how Rehab My Patient's being used in first contact roles particularly, and a little bit about the software as well, if you don't mind. Hi, Jack. Thanks very much for having me on. Rehab My Patient is an amazing exercise prescription tool and it's currently used in over 100 primary care networks with over 400 GP sites using Rehab My Patient now. And one of the challenges with FCP is the shorter appointment times. And with Rehab My Patient, you can easily prescribe an exercise plan in under one minute. And if you create a template, then you can prescribe an exercise plan in under 15 seconds. It's like so quick. You know, and, and, you know, we're busy. We, we don't have the time to spend on making a, uh, a, a complicated exercise plan. We can just send one so fast, you know, and you can also send it by SMS or WhatsApp it to your patient, you know, or, or, or email them a PDF of their plan, you know, and you can attach advice sheets. We've got over 470 MSK advice sheets. And we've just recently shot a whole bunch of exercises for the older population, which is perfect for primary care and for the arthritic patients. It just works so well. And not only that, but we've also got our sister site, Rehab Me, where you can actually put patients on a course of video exercises and for common conditions, you know, for common back problems, for disc problems, you know, for hamstring strains, you know, it, it, and just AccuRx them the link. It fits perfectly into the MSK pathway. So if you want to get access, you can go to rehabmypatient.com forward slash physiomatters or www.rehabme.com. Thanks, Tim. And thanks to Rehab My Patient for their continued support for Physio Matters, but also for Therapy Live, which is now tickets are on sale. Go to therapy-live.co.uk forward slash tickets to snap yours up. Free, of course, and you can purchase the access to the recordings of this and every other show we've done on site as well for a bargain. Um, really excited for that. Ten streams of education, mixed methods of delivery with keynotes, panels, debates, interviews. It's going to be belting. We've got all the streams announced on there, so do check it out and get your get your tickets to what will be another landmark cultural moment. Oh, forgive the noise there. Some seagulls in the background. We've just finally got to uh, my in-laws' caravan in Wales for, for the first time in a long time because of all the lockdowns and stuff. So, yeah, you're going to get more ambient background noise on this intro than usual. Um, so... Get your tickets, don't be shy, because they will, as per usual, sell out. Um, so make sure you, you get yours to what will be another big landmark event in MSK World. We've got, as per usual, some innovative 
streams, uh, including orthopedics, paediatrics, as well as all your favourites across core skills and the, and the body parts, the limposiums, as we like to call them. So yeah, therapy-live.co.uk to get your ticket. So anyway, today's episode is a pretty special one for me because it's a bit, of a bit of a blast from the past. Rob Goodwin was one of my first clinical leads in a really important role in my career, as you'll hear a little bit about at Nottingham City Care Partnership. And Rob, uh, we're quite, quite a pioneer in many ways clinically, and um, we don't get into that as much as I'd like, and, and hopefully me and Rob can have future conversations on and off air about that sort of stuff, but he also did his PhD into a release review into a first contact practice and what he considers to be an advancement of the professional project of physiotherapy um, and uh, undifferentiated patients being seen in various different contexts. Now, uh, Rob's, Rob's work has been lauded by some, and, and uh, he's been considered a, a heretic by others for various different conclusions that he's come to, which admittedly I'll bandwagon myself on this a bit, is that yeah, it does overlap significantly with mine, and, and many of you will notice that this is not dissimilar to some of the rhetoric that we've been putting out for years, including five years ago on a podcast with Karen Middleton where we were questioning the uh, differences that were being inferred between first contact and self-referral when for the patients the access is the, is the key variable. So I uh, really enjoyed getting into this with Rob. Hope you enjoy it too, and please do let us know. Give us the feedback at TPM Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. And like and share. And please do, if you would, send us a review wherever you might be listening to this on, on iTunes and the like. Uh, it really does make a difference to the algorithms these days uh, in, a, in an otherwise saturated podcast landscape. Uh, we're probably a bit shy to, to sometimes promote those bits and pieces, but they are important. So if you don't mind and you enjoy what we do, then please do let us know on those and, and, and help boost our ratings and reviews. All right, take care. I'll see you at the other side. I'm delighted to be here today with Rob Goodwin. And a declaration before we start is that me and Rob used to work together in Nottingham, something that I, I only assume you don't like to admit to. But yeah, we, we did work together in a service called Nottingham City Care. Still something I talk about an awful lot and still put their logo up on many of my slides as something that I consider to be a real foundational experience in my MSK journey and my career. And so, although you know, I'm not going to say we've always kept in touch necessarily. I've been it's been a pleasure to observe his work as he's gone into uh, an academic clinical academic role and pursued his PhD in something that we're both now passionate about, first contact practice. So it's, I'm delighted to get him on. I would say, admittedly, this is probably what I consider the most long-awaited podcast ever because when I conceived of Physio Matters, I don't know if Rob remembers this, but I conceived of Physio Matters, and he was on my very first shortlist at that point to talk about you know developing and managing a, a great service of which. I I felt I was working with him at the time and, and if he I did say at the time to him that this was what I was thinking and planning to do but this is now what nine years ago so uh, here he is nine years in the making Rob Goodwin thank you for coming on Physio Matters could you just introduce yourself to, to the listeners if you would please yeah certainly Jack um, thank you very much and um, before I do a little bit of an introduction of myself um, just a, a couple of things really first of all um, some thank yous so thank you for you to you for inviting me um, as you say, I think the first time we spoke about doing an FCP podcast was probably three or four years ago. So it's taken a bit of time, but it, it's great to be here um, this morning. Um, secondly, I just want to acknowledge my employers, Nottingham City Care, who you've mentioned. They've been fantastically supportive of me and my, my research and my continued research career. I'd also like to acknowledge the CSP for their support and funding towards the research that I've done. And I think it's also really important for me just to sort of acknowledge all of those people who have had to put up with me asking questions and probing 
over the last sort of seven or eight years, really, Jack, that I've been sort of talking to people yeah. about FCP services. Yeah. I think the other thing to say is that a lot of what I'm going to speak about um, today comes from the evidence, so the research I've been doing. But I also expect that one of the reasons that you've asked me on onto the, the show is to, do you call it a show? We are, yeah, show, podcast, sessions. Okay. I want to, sessions. You're on the show. You're on the show. <laughs> okay. Is, um, is for me to express my own personal opinion. So I will be doing that as well. But hopefully that comes from a sort of particularly or relatively well-informed position to be able to offer offer my personal opinion. So does that make sense? It does, absolutely. No, that, that's good. Get all the caveats in place beforehand, <laughs> just as I did with regards to our previous relationship, because I think that does make, it is relevant. That context is relevant. This is something you've lived and breathed for a long time. And also the unique circumstances that exist around Nottingham City Care, for example, is a social enterprise um, of which... Uh, it's been established about 10 years now, I think, ish. Yes, yeah, just that, 10 years, yeah. For me, that is relevant to its ability to have creative services. It's also one of the most long-standing and consistent self-referral services, which I think we will come to. And then similarly, because of its flexibility, has been able to afford you uh, opportunities to pursue things like this, as well as to create pathways and services that are what I consider to be unique and best in class in many ways across the country, having now worked in many different places and had the unique experience of then being invited to visit many services i still hold it in such high regard and, and so yeah i'm glad you mentioned them and their support i'm glad that's continued good thank you jack so a little bit about me um i qualified ostensibly my career doesn't look particularly exciting i qualified from what was then nottingham school of physiotherapy in 1990 and i've worked in nottingham ever since um so i've not i'm not particularly well traveled um I did my basic rotation, senior one and senior two at Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham, um, and then started to develop a particular interest in, in pain services. And I suppose what really interested me in pain services was the sort of psychological component of, of sort of long-term pain in particular. So I got sort of leaning towards sort of psycho psychological interventions and the psychological component of the biopsychosocial um, framework. And so I worked... Um, at a, a rehabilitation centre in Nottingham for about 10 years, established a pain management programme. Um, and then the opportunity came for me to take up my current post, which was a clinical lead at Nottingham City Care. Um, and, and, and really, it was that sort of move to Nottingham City Care, where, as you've said, when I joined the team, they'd already had self-referral for three years. And it was that experience, really, of moving to Nottingham City Care that really started to piqued my interest and started to make me ask questions around self-referral and patient access to physiotherapy as a first point of contact. So that's one of the places that I really wanted to start because it's an acronym that's everywhere and the three-letter acronyms are that's a physio modus operandi it seems. So what is FCP? How would you describe it? Well I suppose to answer that question Jack it probably needs me to go back to the sort of antecedents of my interest in FCP. And as I said, that was, that was self-referral physiotherapy. So you will know from your time when you worked with us here at City Care that the MSK service is incredibly busy. We get, now we get about 14, 1500 referrals a month. When you were with us, we were probably still, we were already at that point getting 900,000 referrals a month. 
And again, on the face of it, these referrals are self-referral physiotherapy referrals. However, again, as you know, Jack, when you speak to these patients, the majority of them have already been to see their GP. So in my mind, it just didn't make sense. You know, these were people who were essentially filling in a form themselves and referring themselves to physiotherapy, but they'd already been to see a GP. So we're going back to about sort of 2012 here. Um, and it, around about this time, you probably couldn't go much longer than a fortnight without reading or hearing or seeing on the TV a story that was coming out of general practice about the travails of the general practitioner workforce. We have an aging population. We have increased burden in general practice. We had an, an aging GP workforce with difficulty training, um, retaining um, and recruiting GPs to the workforce. And so there were, there were very frequently headlines in the press about the unsustainability of general practice. So for me, what I was seeing is a lot of patients that we were subsequently seeing have already been to see the GP. Well, surely if they came to see us first, that would decrease the burden on GPs. And it just made complete and utter logical sense to me. I couldn't see anything really contentious about that at all. So on the back of that, I went to the commissioners. And at that time, it was when you had very sort of, or when I had very close relationships with the commissioners. And I put this proposal to them to test out a very bounded model where patients saw a physiotherapist as a genuine first contact. Um, and we trialed that for a year in two GP practices in Nottingham City. And that's where that bore the first evaluation of what has become known as FCP. So, but really the motivation for me to move to the point of FCP was via self-referral physiotherapy. And the questions about what was it about self-referral physiotherapy that in my mind didn't seem to have achieved what it set out to achieve. Mm. And I, th- I think that that's something that um, I'm interested to explore a little further. And I think we might as well go there now is that what do you think it is about that that then was just not being necessarily implemented? So, for example, and I think that the stats are similar now is that of the even though we we're a self-referred service and that most of the self-referrals were received, I think maybe eight out of 10 of those, 80% of them were referral forms that GPs had given someone following a consultation. And so it wasn't ever a true self-referral. And it also, and I just want to admit that this is how I felt at the time, is that there was a degree of complacency that would sometimes set in from the GPs, knowing that once they sort of recognised, okay, this is MSK, I'm pretty confident of that, that then instead of having the, you know, it's good because they didn't have the admin burden of having to then make a referral, but it also meant that there was sometimes a little cavalier about just being able to give the forms out or to pick a form out on the way out. And so what do you think it is about self-referral that wasn't necessarily cutting through and truly generating that input that meant that physios at that point would have been first contact? Uh, I don't, I think it's complicated. I think that um, one of the things was the sort of geographical dislocation between the general practice and the self-referral physiotherapy service. So it was a, it was a, you know, they saw it as a different service. It sat somewhere else. So they saw they were referring to somewhere else rather than it being part and parcel of the services that are part of general practice and maybe embedded within general practice. They saw, I think they saw it as something separate. I think that, you know, there's definitely uh, 
a burden element to it in terms of, you know, before self-referral, GPs had to complete the referral form themselves. So, you know, you know, that was quite onerous for them. You know, when you think about the proportion of patients that are referred for physiotherapy um, and the proportion of patients with MSK problems at GPC. So I think that they saw it as a, a sort of, you know, an absolution really of that administrative burden, as you've said. And that's obviously gone a step further now. They don't even have to give the patients a form. They give the patients a, 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 a sort of a web address so they can refer okay. themselves online or they give them a telephone number and, and that's it. And that's on a business card. So they have a pile of business cards on the desk next and they just hand it to the patients. And I think there's something also quite interesting about that that relates to FCP in terms of governance and safety. And I think that comes in a little bit, particularly when we are as a profession so cognizant of sort of governance and, and patient safety in particular, and particularly around red flags. And one of the sort of the sort of perhaps un, unexpected outcomes of FCP might be again, you know, I've had GPs say to me, if a patient now mentions they've got an MSK problem, I won't even look at the MSK problem. I'll just say to them, well, go and go to reception and, and book in to see the FCP. And I think, you know, when we're so, as I say, so cognizant of patient safety, I just wonder whether that is a bit of an adverse consequence of FCP, that GPs are perhaps not maybe practising quite as vigilantly. And there's no evidence of that at all. Um, but I think it's just perhaps one of those unexpected outcomes of FCP. That's tough to track, though, isn't it? I mean, it's something that I think it, it speaks to what I was describing as I, I described as complacency, although one that I understand uh, that came from from even self-referral. But I think that 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 process is something that the time frame between the making that call and the person being seen, if that is small, if that time window is small from them saying, as soon as I'm hearing them mention uh, a knee, I'm, I'm zoning out and reaching for my card, right? And we can comprehend why that would be. And we can also comprehend that we're trying to almost motivate some of that behavior. Saying, Just send, send us your MSK patients. We've, we've got the skills, we've got the competence to see them um, even sooner than you would. If there's a gap, though, and that does end up being serious pathology, a time gap that's relevant there, and, and sometimes you can think of the relevance of what pathologies that might be. That relevance could be even hours, never mind days or weeks. That becomes really important. And then the the, the governance and, the, and the, 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 the sort of causal point of safety on, on, on insurance, on, on, on litigation, becomes really quite complex. You know, does that count as an assessment? Him hearing those words and then reaching for that card, even if it's in a waiting room, that, you know, do, does that, you know, lawyers would have a field there trying to work out whether that's an assessment or not. And so these questions, it, it, it kind of, for me at least, and I'm sure we'll get into this deeper into the podcast is, it, it irritates me that I feel like I, ref, I recognize some of this conversation in early conversations, even between us when we work together. And, and I know you've had them ever since and stuff. And obviously I've, I've been, been uh, out being a much broader generalist necessarily. But that fascinates me that that still remains a bit unanswered, unexplored in, in many ways until your research, I guess. What then piqued your interest further in pursuing a PhD into it then? Like, why, was, it, was it just the, the gappiness of this conversation or what? Yeah, so, yeah, so it, was, it was the gappiness of that, what we've spoken about already, but also the gappiness in terms of patients and their awareness and understanding. So, again, Jack, you will know this, that these people who had 
been told to refer by their GP, they completed the self-referral form, they phoned up and self-referred themselves to physiotherapy. You know, occasionally what you would find is somebody who'd been to the service previously would the next time self-refer um, of their own volition. Yeah. But not always. Some patients still went back to see their GP. So that was a, that was an interesting thing. What was it about the the sort of hierarchy and the dominance of medicine that made people default to the GP as a first point of contact for most healthcare problems, even MSK problems, when they'd seen a physiotherapist in the past. So that was interesting, and I wanted to explore that. Um, but the other thing was, you know, patients had no – when you spoke to the patients who had been told to refer, why didn't you self-refer? Well, I didn't know. I didn't know the service existed. I had no idea that I could self-refer to physiotherapy you know they were just blown away do you mean I could I could have phoned up here and come through making a phone call myself yes of course that's what self-referral physiotherapy is but people just didn't do it people didn't do it and I thought that was really really interesting as well so that was Mm. that was the other thing that sort of you know I wasn't particularly bothered um, about does self-referral physiotherapy get patients better or not you know, I hoped that it did. And if it didn't, then we'd have to take a very long, hard look at ourselves because that's what we do. And that's what we've been doing for a hundred so years. So to again, perhaps naively, I gave that as a bit of a given, but it was these complexities and these more nuanced things that really, really interested me and, and sort of made me pursue, um, pursue doing a PhD. I think the other thing that's a little bit lost, Jack, um, which I think is also really important for us to think about during this conversation, but also more widely as a profession, is about four months through this one-year evaluation, which was in two GP practices, the commissioners summoned us to their office and we thought, oh gosh, what's happened? And they said, we want to roll this out across the whole of Nottingham. We want to roll it out to 20 GP practices. We would roll it out to more GP practices, but the, the other GP practices haven't got room for it. So I can remember sitting in the office and saying, okay, so what do you want? And they said, we want exactly the same as we've got in those two GP practices. And at that time, they they were two band seven physiotherapists working in those GP practices. So we were looking at instantaneously recruiting seven or eight band seven physiotherapists for these, um, what are now called FCP roles. Now, my management at that time were really nervous about that, and they balked at that. And within that sort of process of a half hour conversation, we had negotiated taking it down from a band seven to a band six. Okay. now there were some caveats that came with that. They would not be advanced practitioners. They would be band six physiotherapists and they would have a band seven who who led the team and would provide day to day sort of resource for clinical problems and decision making, etc. And this this has been a little bit lost in the in the discourse and narrative over the last seven years, because two colleagues who I work with, who, you know, Karen Martini and Rich Kelly, they wrote this up, this 20 GP practice BANSIC service that was there with non-substantive money for about 18 months. They saw over 10,000 patients. There were no adverse incidents recorded. And the outcomes, and those outcomes were onward referrals to secondary care, referrals. They couldn't refer for diagnostics. They couldn't do injections. They had to go to the GP 
and talk to them about accessing those things. But the 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 incidence of them having to seek that support from GPs was exactly the same as the advanced practitioners who had had access to referring to secondary care and referring for diagnostics. There was no difference at all in terms of the proportion of patients that they they referred through for those those activities. Um, patient satisfaction levels were equitable with the band seven service and GP satisfaction. We didn't measure GP satisfaction in my evaluation, but it was high for the band the band six service. Now, this Karen put in an abstract to Congress, which was accepted. It was peer reviewed, as I, I presume, as part of that acceptance. But that 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 story's been a little bit lost from the FCP narrative in terms of in terms of just the sort of vision and concept of FCP. And I think that's just worth mentioning as well, perhaps picking up at some point. Yeah, definitely. No, it's, it's something that I, I found really interesting because it, it, it coincided and it's not not because of this. It was purely geography that drew, drew me away reluctantly from working for city care. But essentially, it was around that time that I then had left that service, then then worked in various different places of which wasn't as good a fit, which made me always hark back and also therefore read about some of the especially the published work or that that, that Richard kindly share drafts of some of that stuff. Um, or I still had close friends, of course, working on that cold face that would then keep me informed of it and quite exciting developments. One of the challenges that, that I made, especially when it was published and I really gave it some thought that I, I know I've brought with you privately, but let's let's talk about it now is I felt that through no fault of yours, in fact, it's a great asset in many ways, but I felt that the band sixes de- de- described there are, for me, at least as thinkers, underpaid sevens in many ways. They just They just... Perhaps I'm overinflating this because that's where I cut my teeth. Maybe I'm doing so as to say, oh, the apprenticeship I had at City Care therefore made me what I am. But generally speaking, I'll embarrass them by name dropping. People like Danny Smart, Emma Ratcliffe, Ed Lee. Um, I'm probably missing some people out I shouldn't now. But generally, they were Rich Barnes. These are people that, for me, were at least on a clinical reasoning level, had been through the the the, the mire that I had when when we're coming through on a self referred service, just mean, needing to be more cognizant of of, of flags, not having and, and having a supervision governance that was now I realise second to none. That meant that for me, it almost cut the books of that outcome data in a way because it's kind of like that is not, and, and especially having then done a bit more more travelling around the country and thinking that that isn't necessarily a representative six. And I don't know how there's a je ne sais quoi to that, right? That's bloody subjective. That's that's Jack's take on the matter, and it's it's hard. But I, I still look back on that and obviously read it again ahead of this conversation and thought, there's something to be said there, right? The competent the legacy of the competency framework that was around your service, from you, Rich, Karen, uh, Andy Prophet before that, just people putting uh, Nancy Manners, um, I'm gonna fail to mention names if I, I'm just gonna stop at that. But it's just that these were people that had really given thought to this ahead of the curve. And that must have then set the scene for those sixes to flourish and for that data to show what it did. Do you think I'm over, overstating that? No, I don't think you are wholly. I think there is still some value in those wider conversations. And that's also things that people have said to me in the research that I've been doing over the last sort of seven or so years around skill mix and workforce. And I'm, again, I'm sure we might pick this up later. But I don't. But I think there is some truth in, in what you're saying as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I've reflected on, Jack, is that the nature. So a, a big sort of argument for the, the sort of the advanced um, 
the advanced level practice within the FCP role is the undifferentiated nature of the patients that are seen. And this has also made me reflect a little bit about the model of service that we have. So patients who self-refer to our service, taking into account they've probably not self-referred, they've been told to refer. If they do that online, they, they complete a very, very um, brief web form online. So they, they have a drop down selection of what the problem is. So that might be back pain. It might be leg pain. It might be neck pain. It might be shoulder and arm pain, something like that. They have a couple of questions which are red flag orientated questions. Have you had any problems with your bladder and bowel? You know, screening questions, which it, it, if they click that, it, it pops up and says, go and see your GP to sort of try and get rid of those red flag patients. But what that means is whether you're a band five, a band six, a band seven within our service. When you open that referral, that's all you get. That's all the information you get. Now, that's pretty undifferentiated in, in my eyes. Um, so I think that what that means is that where you have come from and the experience you, you have can set you up more strongly or less strongly for the FCP role. And a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people who I've spoken to after last over the last seven or so years are physiotherapists who've moved into these roles from secondary care. Now, secondary care is likely to be a very different kettle of fish in terms of the information that you get. You know, those patients aren't very likely to be undifferentiated to that extent. Yeah. And I think that that's what puts, like yourself, like Danny, Laura, Emma, etc., um, sort of six or seven years ago, in an advantageous position, and I think that's what we're seeing in some of the experiences of the FCPs that we have just recruited to the, the sort of existing rollout of FCP services. So, I was telling you just before we started of a of an undergraduate project where um, the question was asked how often are you using advanced practice skills? Now, the first question was around those things that we, we think more frequently and commonly of as advanced practice skills, such as injections, et cetera, et cetera. And, and very sort of similar to other findings, they said they use those skills infrequently, around about 5% of the time. And I think that mirrors the work of the Frontier team down in Bristol when they asked, asked a similar question. But we also, and I got this question put in explicitly, ask them, how often do you feel you're using advanced practice musculoskeletal clinical reasoning skills? Now, they said, or 50% of the physiotherapists who are working FCP said that they used advanced clinical reasoning skills in less than half of their patients. Okay, so what they're saying is that was over half of the physiotherapists said that they felt that they needed advanced skills in less than half of the, the patient population. We asked the question the other way around, how often do you think people need more basic musculoskeletal physiotherapy skills? And you can debate what that means. But they said that two thirds of the patients required more basic physiotherapy skills. Now, again, you can look at that two ways. Some of these physiotherapists, and I'm, I hope they, they don't mind me saying this, are probably in the first 
quarter of their career if they work for as long as if they're unlucky enough to work for as long as I, I have. So, you know, on the whole scheme of things, they're, they're, they're probably early career band seven physiotherapists. So you could say what you don't know, you don't know. And I think there is a there is a real argument for that. Um, but you could also say that the way that our service is designed and delivered has set them up for this sort of uncertainty and unpredictability of this undifferentiated type of patient. Um, so I think that I think that it does depend a lot on where you've come from. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's interesting because, of course, the subjectivity between what is basic and advanced as perceived is is a fascinating conversation in itself because you can't if you think if I try to put myself back into my shoes as a band five in your service and by the way at that point I was recruited in uh, to an MSK band five role it's one of the things that attracted me in primary care and I really wanted to see that variety and I also absolutely unlike some of my colleagues who came to love it eventually but I loved the I loved the uncertainty I loved the risk of a sorts of the fact that I just had a, had a self-referral with a name on it, a date of birth, if I were lucky, and uh, and it said knee, right? And I just and I and I love the fact that whereas others were really irritated by that and wanted that bit more detail to reflect on ahead of time. But then if I think about what I was needing to do with that and also was supported through appropriate competency framework and, and, and great supervision, often shoulder-to-shoulder supervision cross curtain, meant that I was then able to then make sure that then my differential reasoning over, over uh, masqueraders and, and, and flags, et cetera, was such that if that's advanced reasoning, I was having to do it eight-month qualified, nine-month qualified when I joined the service. So if, you, if you're arguing that that's advanced reasoning, you've got to start then recognising that that has consequence to what is the competence of which we're graduating professionals, really. That, that, that is, it has those sorts of consequences. Now, that conversation needs to therefore be had because – on first contact, in terms of who is, if a physiotherapist is seeing someone, in this case with sorbits, as the first professional that they see, we've got to understand that part of what we're graduating people into as per our, our bachelors and, and signing the HCPC register is as autonomous clinicians. And if they work in private practice, if they work in occupational health settings, if they work in sporting context, that is something that is implied. It doesn't mean that they're brilliant at it, but they're competent at it. And so, therefore, by implication in inferring that first contact in GP practice under this new model, therefore, needs to be advanced practice, is creating, it's implying something as to the competence of those graduates. And it's, it's been, I've been at pains, and in, on this podcast, we had Karen Middleton on years ago, and I, and I really struggled to articulate that and make sure that that, for me, the self-referral come FCP was a distinction without a difference, and it's something that our listeners have then a fairly regular basis got in touch with us saying, did that point ever land? And so I ask you the question, did that point ever land, Rob? Is, is there something that between self-referral and what is now conceived of as FCP on a patient level in terms of access and in terms of what we're implying on the profession, is there a relevant difference there? Well, I think you know my view on this, Jack, and you know I've had my fingers burnt for expressing it in the past. Um, I think that fundamentally they are the same thing. So let's imagine you're somebody in Nottingham City where I work and you wake up this morning with a bad back and you're fortuitous enough to know that there is a self-referral service and you've got the telephone number. You pick the phone up and you refer yourself to that service. So, you know, at the moment our waiting list is remarkable because of COVID. 
you know, in, in a week's time, you might have an appointment to see a physiotherapist. Now, that's first contact. You know, in my mind, that is a first contact. And that's how self-referral physiotherapy was set up and conceived. And because of my own um, uncertainty and unsuredness, I had this conversation with Leslie Holdsworth and Jill Gamlin, who were pioneers of both physio direct telephone and obviously Leslie Holdworth was absolutely the pioneer and champion of self-referral physiotherapy in Scotland. And unless I um, misunderstood the conversations that we had, then that was that was how they saw self-referral physiotherapy working. Um, and I think the question that's really important for us as a profession, and we need to think about this because it has relevance to FCP, is why is it that, F, that self-referral perhaps didn't achieve its ultimate outcome in terms of people using it more often and I think that that was a bit of a double-edged sword because one of the concerns about self-referral was that it would be absolutely that services would be overrun there'd be a tidal wave that was part of the rhetoric around you know coming from the medical profession you know these services will be overrun and and physiotherapy as a profession was very proud to say well no it's not overrun well probably the reason it wasn't overrun is because nobody knew about it so nobody was referring themselves to it anyway. Um, and, and that is that is a, a danger that um, is relevant or a caution that is relevant to FCP. Because, you know, in my mind, what we need to do is we need to market physiotherapy as the first, the default first contact practitioner for people who have MSK problems. You know, if that marketing campaign was absolutely fantastically effective, then I suspect there wouldn't be enough capacity within within physiotherapy services. So there is some caution to be exercised about doing that. But if we have a very, very long term vision about where we see physiotherapy, musculoskeletal physiotherapy being 10, 15, 20 years hence, then those are the those are the aspirations in my mind that we should be aiming for. And I try to sort of coin this phrase, I wouldn't see my doctor with a toothache, because this is what happened in dentistry. Dentistry achieved a monopoly over the treatment of, of dental care. Now you still have people who go to see the dentist and it's, it's not a dental problem, it's a medical problem and they're sent to see the doctor. But on the whole, if you wake up in the morning and you have got, you notice that your blood pressure is elevated, but you've got a toothache, you don't think, well, I'll book in to see the doctor for both of them. You book in to see the doctor for your elevated blood pressure, but you still book an appointment to see the, the dentist for your toothache. Now, that's because dentistry is the default first contact practitioner for dental problems. And, and you know, in my mind, that would be my aspiration and vision for musculoskeletal physiotherapy. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, I've... Um always trying to look for angles of which I could try and be devil's advocate but unfortunately in this instance I completely agree in every which way including the aspiration I think that aspiration is relevant in terms of philosophical terms as to first principles you look at it and think when you strip it back and you look at it from a few different angles that is what we want as an outcome is that someone would understand and perceive that they are with the access and if they knew about that access then that's what they would do now it seems therefore that the only real distinction that can be made is the context of which well, the context of which they will be seen right the location or the trappings of that service right so 
same person wakes up with with back pain knows of knows of the suite of options that they have available in that locality they self-refer to physiotherapy now they they therefore attend especially if they've got um choice in terms of location they, they attend where whereby they can get an appointment on an online book service not dissimilar to someone going to my private website by the way right so so i'm I sat here in, in, in a studio of which is in a private practice in which that's exactly what they do right they know of me by the way we're only one location but essentially that's what they do now same person that might know of the local NHS service, they could do exactly the same thing into that NHS service. So therefore, the first contact practice model that we're talking about in the UK now, that seems that, that is inferred to be distinct from what we're describing, is simply that that, deli- that care delivery is in a GP practice of which they're registered or, a, or, or an associated building. Is that correct? Um, I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that's a really big, important part of it. Um, but, you know, there are lots and lots of different models of FCP services. Some patients might phone their GP. They might be signposted to an FCP service, but that FCP service might be some distance away for them. So, you know, it, not, it might not even be that, that sort of um, that right, straightforward, right. Jack. Um, but, but, but without a doubt, you know, having the physiotherapist within the GP practices is a really important feature in my mind through the work that I've done for FCP services. Now, as I say, if we did see this whole scale shift for patients with MSK problems to true first contact, it would take quite a bit of thinking about because, as you know, what's amazed me is the number of times people say we would have FCP, but we haven't got any space. You know, there's no room to accommodate a physiotherapist within the practice. And when those are the when those are the barriers, you know that's that's you know incredibly frustrating. But it does mean there has to be some really sort of broader thinking about the whole MSK pathway, and and making that as seamless as possible. Um, now, the model that what what's really interesting is that when I first started doing this and we did that very first evaluation, I thought, blimey, we've got a, a model here that that should be replicable and transferable across the country and the the actual fact of the matter is that it isn't um because of um because of lots of lots of reasons but but the what i'm coming round to over time is that the model that we have got here is a really good template for a seamless patient experience mm. because we as an organization have the essentially the monopoly for MSK primary care physiotherapy. We also provide the majority of FCP services, which means that patients who require ongoing physiotherapy simply step sideways from the FCP service into the MSK service. We also are the interface service for for patients who are referred through to secondary care. So we have the gatekeeping responsibility for those patients as well. So, and we work increasingly more closely with secondary care consultants in orthopedic and spinal surgery. We can we could further sort of develop those relationships, but it makes for a quite seamless patient yeah. experience. And I think that, that that's really important. But there isn't the capacity for our MSK physiotherapy service all to move into general practice. But, mm. but being in general practice has some really important features of embedding FCP services um, within within the community. 
The model of FCP that you're describing there, of which you're therefore most supportive of and an advocate of because of your involvement, as well as this being an applied version of your own learning, no doubt, from you having um, influenced it so greatly over the t over time, as well as then obviously the academic pursuit that's going to have informed this work. How far does that differ as it stands from the, uh, although, like you said, I, I granted there are variations that exist but it's kind of ascribed in policy and it's proliferating at quite a rate so how much does the model you're describing as, as of what you perceive as optimal in this circumstance how does that compare uh, to the model as it's being rolled out well there's, there's there's so much variety and you know although i've described a model that i think is is really quite exemplary in terms of patient experience and patient journey and the seamlessness of it what I've also realized over time is that, you know, perhaps perhaps I have come to realize it's a model that can also sort of um, tolerate greater flexibility as well. Um, and I think that that's something that we as a profession. So whether that's flexibility around workforce and, and, um, and skill mix, which we've touched on already, or whether that's flexibility around what the physiotherapist can practically do. And I want to give you an example of, of that working in reality. Okay. So I'm currently doing a bit of work for the CSP, interviewing people in Northern Ireland and in the Highlands of Scotland. Now, as you can imagine, some of those services are really, really remote. Um, so the physiotherapist might see a patient once or twice, which is really the sort of the prerequisite for FCP. But they've got somebody who... They, who they have a sense from their experience they could see another couple of times and they would really get them on board and they'd move them on in their journey to the point of saying you're fine you can self-manage or they refer them through to the existing MSK service which might be a, a two-hour round trip oh, journey right. to the local that's right so yeah. you know it makes sense for them to have some flexibility in the FCP model and see those patients a few more times but again, that's really important for us to think about because that that takes up some capacity from their from their sort of FCP traditional FCP model. Okay, so we those are the sorts of things that we have to sort of think about, as I say, being flexible with the FCP model to allow for that, that variability and those contextual requirements really and I think that's really important that we do that but again that's 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 accommodated if there is a, a supported shift to encouraging patients to access physiotherapy as a first point of contact rather than you know some more boundaried model of what FCP should or shouldn't look like. Mm. And do you think that um in the in the framing of my question, I offered the where the distinction might lie between what is considered to be optimal in your opinion and what is typical. Let's say, even though it's, do you think that the the flexibility is the key component there, whereby the current implemented model, as is described, is something that therefore has has more parameters around it that seem maybe restrictive? If I were to try and put words in your mouth, again, Jack, I think it's really complicated because what from our very first evaluation um, what we found was that physiotherapists so we had the two practices one was a one was a university practice which was obviously very atypical you know the average age of the patient was 25 
The FCP in that practice saw the patients just over once on average. Um, The FCP in the inner city practice saw the patients just under twice on average. GPs, interestingly, see patients for MSK problems on average just over twice. So it's not like GPs are treating these patients repeatedly time and time and time again. You know, these patients have sort of generally managed fairly effectively by GPs anyway. So it wasn't it wasn't a question of, you know, were they it was it was a shifting of this workload burden, really, that was that was important. The nature of the service of which you're describing as being near optimal and then the sort of more blueprint that's been described, although, of course, we know there's variation amongst that, I would say. Is it that that is more more restrictive, more parameterized, more limited in its scope and, and, and flexibility than what you're describing as the, the needs of what you think is an optimal service? Is that fair for me to put those words in your mouth a little? Um, I, I think that's reasonably fair. Yeah, I think that definitely what I've come to learn is that, you know, because of the contextual differences, it, it probably requires some flexibility in the model um, and we can't have have the sort of um, the the sort of parameters of that model um, defined too strictly because there will need to be some flexibility. Um, so so yes, I think you're probably right in terms of you know perhaps the the existing model is a little bit restrictive um, for all sorts of reasons, Jack. You know we've spoken about workforce, we've spoken about skill mix, um, we've spoken about sort of rurality and and urban situations. So and and associated sort of, you know, pathways that patients experience. You know, I gave the example that we've got in Nottingham. That's very different to, to elsewhere. So, so yes, I think definitely flexibility is really important in in the sort of the thinking about FCP services moving forward. It brings me on to really one of the. I mean, we've definitely visited a lot of this already, um, but I really want to ask more more pointedly. What do you see as being the key opportunities and challenges that FCP has in the UK? Well, I mean, as I said before, I think that, you know, for me, the vision is that, you know, people get to the point of waking up and thinking, I've got a, what they would interpret, and this is the challenge, a musculoskeletal problem, I need to book an appointment to see a physiotherapist. I think where that physiotherapist is, to a certain extent, is less important. I think there are advantages of it being within the GP practice. Um, But I think that, you know, I mean, I have said sort of somewhat tongue in cheek that, you know, in Nottingham City, the money that's being spent on FCP could have been spent on marketing the existing self-referral physiotherapy service to the population of Nottingham City in a way that that meant that people access the service. And alongside that, putting up a, uh, a sort of um, a restriction of people going to be able to see their GP with a musculoskeletal problem. Now, obviously, that's tongue in cheek and that's, you know, that's it's just hypothetical. But, you know, it, it sort of gets the point across. It, it's about patients seeing a physiotherapist as a first point of contact to me. That should be the aspiration that we're aiming for. Now, what my research shows is that if you put a physiotherapist within a GP practice, nobody knows they're there. The, the posters on the walls don't really have too much of an impact. But over time the local population start to become aware that that service exists in the same way as they did, for example, when the GP practice set up a a breastfeeding clinic for new mums. 
you know, it was advertised in the practice. Nobody knew. But over time, the local yeah. population became aware of it. And nurse, the nurse uh, practitioner roles as well, with regards to when when that that's um, not just an awareness piece, but also the fact that when someone goes to book, you send, you know, are you OK to or you see the nurse practitioner for that? Sometimes it's 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 offered. Sometimes it's actually just that's she sees complaints such as you're describing. And and that becomes and I know from my own experiences uh, for me and my children, et cetera, is that you, you kind of that has become more of a norm. You say, I'd like to see the doctor about. And that, that it doesn't feel like an overt affront to that idea to say, actually, you see the X for that. And I imagine that's part of what you're describing there in terms of identity. Absolutely. So so signposting has come out in every bit of work that I've done as absolutely fundamental to the success of achieving the first contact within the first contact principle of the FCP. Mm. But but that's, that's massively variable, Jack. You know, I've had practices... Right. FCPs described to me their first contact hit rate being 80%. You know, eight out of 10 patients are genuine first contact. I've had other services described it as low as 10, 20%. So the the rest of those patients are coming via a GP still. And I think, again, that's the, that's the sort of, the sort of, the sort of thing that we need to be aware of. And physiotherapists spoke about their frustration of having to repeatedly go to GPs and say, look, you know, that's not how the service is meant to be used. You know, it's not the MSK service. And again, you can completely understand the GPs doing that. They've got a physiotherapist in the room next door. They've got a, they know that the, the, the MSK service has got a waiting list of four months. Well, I'm going to send you to the desk to book and see the physiotherapist. So, you know, you can understand them doing that, but it's yeah. definitely undermining and challenging the FCP principle. And it's not achieving the objectives. It's taking up capacity of the FCPs. Um, so, so yes, it's, it, you know, the complexities go on and on and on, really. And these are all the sorts of things that, you know, I've spoken about in the work that I've done that we need to think about. Um, but over time, those things, I think, do change. It takes a lot of work from the FCP in role um, and it takes a lot of education and it, and it takes time. And I think, you know, we can just let this tick its natural course. And in 15, 20 years time, we may be the default practitioner just through natural evolution, or we can take a more proactive approach. The danger with taking a more slow, let's see approach is that the same thing happens that happened to self-referral physiotherapy and it, and it doesn't achieve that sort of, that sort of ultimate um, aspiration really. Yeah. I think in principle, I end up being, hugely optimistic both in in terms of especially if we can uh, mature the conversation around the self-referral come fcp non-distinction we've described but also i just think that the, 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 the principles are sound patients um, we, we know consistently love it when they get access and that therefore you know and all the all the accusations of safety concerns that sometimes come from various different quarters etc have never borne out in the literature or in in any sort of analysis on, on service evaluation from what i've seen therefore Again, in principle, I'm loving it. I think my concern comes in in practice. I can think of a number of different ways in which the persistence that is required, like you described, to educate the the GPs, the GP practice, the the pathway managers, the commissioners, as to what it is, what it isn't. I think that people get weary of that sooner than they need to, in part because 
it's something that, especially someone that's that's new in role in a, in a practice, and to some degree, because of the siloed isolation that's sometimes occurring in many of these new roles, which is very relevantly distinct to what you're describing in your team, which is nested within a, a service that therefore has the governance and competence and education and, and, and supervision that comes with that. When you've got the more isolated pockets, then becoming a yes man or woman for the GPs in that practice is a completely reasonable social phenomena to achieve. And obviously I'll talk to you a little bit about sociology of, of uh, kinship and identity within these practices, which I know is part of what I've read uh, in your PhD, which kind of that I think therefore the burden that is on the FCPs to do the important work that you're describing is that if they notice that in their diary, that they've, just a double click on system one or EMIS means that a GP has then moved one of their patients in for a consult. You think that's good that they care and value their physiotherapy colleagues' uh, opinion on, and sometimes even it's in there as a joint assessment or whatever. That's not the point. To push back hard on that when you've not necessarily got, you're not even attached to the wider pathway. You, you're just in there as a colleague within that practice. I think because the system doesn't protect that clinician or that new model doesn't necessarily protect that clinician. That's why in practice, I just, I, I, I lose a lot of my optimism because I think that that just doesn't seem, it's got too many points of failure, I guess. I just wondered if I could admittedly just that's, that's me and my opinion as it stands. I just wonder what your thoughts are on those concerns. I, th I think there's some truth in it. I think that, um, you know, I hear physiotherapists and GPs talk about how the physiotherapist becomes embedded in the practice, how the physiotherapist becomes part of the general practice team when they attend the practice. It's the same person attending the practice regularly. And my first take on that is that that's really advantageous. Yeah. Um, you know, they become a really they become a really intrinsic and valued part of the general practice team to the to the point where they're not seen as somebody who's employed by the secondary care trust who's coming out to them they really do seem as if they become embedded in in the practice and i've always taken that as being a really really positive thing you know what's what was interesting in the data collection on the second round of, of data collection in the national evaluation is that it, it It seemed like things have evolved, you know, when Fiona Moffat, Paul Hendrick and myself looked at our original eva evaluation qualitatively, there was this almost covert way that GPs and advanced practice nurses checked the physiotherapist notes to see what they were doing. And what they said is they found that that was a bit of a way of upskilling, but it was done it. So all oh, the physiotherapist assessment is really comprehensive, do a really good job. But it wasn't it wasn't done in a very overt way. It was a bit sort of covert and a bit sort of checking almost. And I'm sort of sure some of that was also to do with the GPs just checking that the physiotherapists were competent. But in the second round of data collection in the national evaluation, that changed. And there was a real celebration, a real overt celebration of the MSK skill set that the physiotherapist brought into GP practice. So it wasn't just physiotherapists going and knocking on the GP's door for non-MSK problems, it was GPs coming and talking to the physiotherapists about patients that they were seeing and they needed some advice from the physiotherapists around MSK speciality. So I think that's, that was something that was perhaps not valued in the early days and it was really seen as valuable by the general practices. practices. But I can understand what you're saying that, you know, the there is a danger with that sort of 
evolution of the physiotherapist as an individual within the general practice team that they might feel pressurized to become a little less sort of um, FCP. This is what FCP should be doing. So that's the danger with bringing in some flexibility that they become a little bit of a, oh, yeah, I'll see them four times and I'll do. Yeah. OK, I'll do a little bit of massage for this patient or whatever or whatever it is. But, mm. but that's the danger with the flexibility that they lose that first contact sort of trans, more transformate, transformatory role that the FCP was originally put into practices. But I think that as long as that's done in an open way, it doesn't necessarily have to undermine the FCP principle. But what it does mean is there needs to be a damn sight more capacity to be able to have to have that flexibility. And, 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 you know, when you talk about, you know, what's the vision and what are the challenges? Well, the challenges, you know, certainly are around finances and funding to make enough capacity. Because I don't think I've spoken maybe one GP practice where they could very, very clearly say that the GPs were maybe one or two where the GPs were clearly able to describe a decrease in the number of patients that they saw with MSK problems. Because the capacity of most FCP services, particularly in England, is so limited that it's, you know, it, it's not going to really penetrate too deeply beneath the surface of the number of patients who go to a general practice with a musculoskeletal problem. You know, when when I describe to Sorry, when I describe to people in Scotland and, and Ireland that in, in England we have one FCP for a PCN of a population of 50,000, they fall off their chairs. You know, they've got one per 10,000 and they're still not they've still not got sufficient capacity. So we've got a long, long way to go in terms of, you know, max and um, optimizing the capacity of FCP services. I think one of the things as well, when I look at those numbers, I think that one of the things that sometimes gets missed is the fact that there isn't always a good differentiation between who's presenting with a primary MSK complaint and who has a secondary or tertiary MSK complaint alongside something that they would have seen a doctor about. And therefore, that sometimes gets caught up in something that wouldn't necessarily be easy to differentiate, because as soon as you've uncoupled those problems, which could be arguably and sensibly considered advantageous to that person's care, it still doesn't necessarily do what is being described as being a um, an efficiency exercise on the actual contacts for the NHS, for example. And so that, I think that that's where I'd, I, that closer that closer look at that data, as well as how that maps onto the experiences and the subjective variables that you've studied. I'm, I'm looking forward or hoping that that, that gets un, unpicked. One of the models that's as old as the ones that we're describing, if not older, is the fact that, and sometimes people miss this for some reason, is that GP practices, many of them are independent for profit businesses, and they can employ a physiotherapist, and they still can, and they have done for many many years, right? And especially something that I've noticed, and I don't have the data on this, but certainly again on my travels, is that you, you have affluent areas of which then uh, that practice is doing particularly well, and they consider that to be a useful thing to have for their, for their patients. And so they employ a physiotherapist in, in situ. And that ends up being quite mixed. Some of those clinicians are have a mixed caseload of what would be considered fcp work of which they've been a patient has been triaged by reception or otherwise or even by virtual triage from from the gps into that or it could be a cross referral from a doctor and that's the given that's been 10 plus years worth of care because that continues to exist and it muddies that water that doesn't corrupt the principles that we're describing but 
for me, the, this is why the messaging has to be crystal clear. Is because whilst those things can coexist, if we don't get the messaging right within prof- within the profession, within the within, amongst the policymakers, as well as then trying to make sure we're, we're speaking with one voice to the patients, to the communities, especially through marketing campaigns of which should emerge uh, if we're sensible for the reasons we've talked about. I think that 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 for me means that that the odds aren't necessarily in our favour. It can be redressed, but if we if we ignore it or we, oh no, that's not what we're talking about. I just can't see how we can sort of mature that. Has that happened in your locality at all? Or is that something that you've heard about uh, from your from your studies? No, no. And I think it's still a massive, a massive gap, Jack, in terms of articulating very, very clearly the message. And that's why I think it needs to go broader than FCP. It needs to go physiotherapy. You know, um, you know, the CSB um, had a, a strap line a few years ago, which was think physio. And I think that that's a really useful strap line, you know, for, right. for, for this agenda. You know, people, as I said, you know, keep sorry, I keep repeating myself. You know, we want people who wake up with a musculoskeletal problem to think physio. That's their that should be their point of access. Mm. Um, you're absolutely right, though, with your first point in terms of the real complexity of teasing out the unburdening of GPs and, and the sort of the counter argument that. The patient leaves the GP consultation and says, oh, by the way, doc, I've got a stiff shoulder. Um, and, and that will never go. That will, you know, that won't go. But, you know, like I said previously, in terms of the dentistry, you know, people can have a, a sore tooth, but they think of the dentist. You know, the person who has a stiff shoulder, we, you could maybe imagine a point where the patient doesn't mention that as they're leaving the room because they think, well, that's, that's something that I'll speak to the physiotherapist about. I need to go and sort of book that appointment as well. So, um, you know, you, you, you know, you could see that perhaps getting to that point, but at the moment you're absolutely right. There needs to be more work done on the, the objective empirical unburdening of GPs. But there's a, but there's also a a sort of associated um, sort of thing that we need to be aware of. Um, which is the sort of the, the sort of narrative that came from the general practice workforce in terms of unskilling of GPs around MSK health complaints with the knowledge that patients will say to them, or oh, what about my stiff shoulder doctor? You know, they, they, they have to have some MSK skill set. Um, so one of the models that, that, you know, I've been sort of playing over in my mind is to have a GP practice that throughout the week runs, you know, defined musculoskeletal clinics where you've got a GP and a physiotherapist working alongside each other in separate rooms working alongside each other and that would fulfill a lot of the concerns that exist so we know that socio-culturally patients default to their GP okay Mm -hmm. they have a confidence in medicine that they have for no other healthcare professional so that would allay that concern because there would be a GP working within that clinic so if it was a you know you could sort of say well there's a doctor there as well as a physiotherapist and you could just you could randomly assign patients you could then what you could also do in that model is you could do a comparative um, evaluation of the efficacy of the GP compared to the physiotherapist so I think it would serve a lot of it would start to answer a lot of questions because if you modeled the number of those clinics a week to the anticipated demand of patients with MSK problems. And we can do that. We know how many GP consultation there are in a week. We know roughly what percentage should be MSK. We create that capacity. 
the rest of the GPs within the practice should be seeing very few, if any, patients with a primary musculoskeletal problem. So you then also start to be able to bit of measure more accurately the impact that first contact musculoskeletal clinics, in this case, would have on, on GP um, workforce and experience. Now, you could do that solely with physiotherapy FCP services. You, you'd need more capacity within a GP practice, um, within an individual practice, um, to be able to, to be able to measure that. And then you wouldn't get that sort of reassurance that patients are seeking about there being some medical input within that clinic. And it's a, that would be a sort of step to, to sort of, you know, ultimately just having physiotherapists providing those services. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, within your, within your PhD, there's some really rich material that I had to read a few times with regards to sort of sociological analyses of professional identity. There's even sort of um, discu discussions of Foucauldian analysis of power as how that, that's perceived within, within the structures and, and hierarchies within, within healthcare, within medicine, etc. But one of the things that I've found interesting in, in my journey on, on, especially through MSKR, et cetera, is that we've increasingly been speaking what we consider to be more counter-tribal language amongst MSK professionals and not necessarily then leaning into physiotherapy as, as one. That's, that's something that we've suggested as being that, you know, for, from us on a, on a governance level and an education level with the variety, that therefore the, the, what we describe as being the flavour of certificate on someone's wall, not necessarily making as much of a difference to the quality and competence. We saw no evidence of that being appropriately gatekept in such a way that we could make that distinction inherent to the badge. Now, that's an easy thing to say across sector, you know, with regards to private, with regards to sport, independent sector, charities, etc. Whereas in the NHS, the vast, vast majority of MSK clinicians are physiotherapists. Do you think that rhetoric such as what I've just described from me and mine, does that, does that end up spoiling and murking the, the, the conversation such as what you're having, where the Think Physio is a, is, a, is a cleaner message and also one that I'm supportive of in that context? I'm sort of now grappling from listening to you as to whether or not, you know, are, are, we, are we helping a hindering there? What, what's your sort of take on the physiocentricity of what you're describing? Yeah, no, no, I'm aware it's very, very physiocentric, you know, you know, my whole stance was that, you know, from a sociology of the professions perspective, you know, FCP was the latest manifestation of physiotherapists or physiotherapies professional project. You know, it's 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 trying to physiotherapy as a profession is trying to sort of, you know, capture a market which is part of its professional professional project. And, you know, I think you know, previously we've seen physiotherapy as a profession do this, you know, the sort of massage scandals at the end of the 1800s, mm. you know, the world wars, particularly World War One, gave physiotherapists a real opportunity. And I think the, the, the sort of, you know, the financial crisis, the aging population, the, the sort of um, the difficulties and challenges to the GP workforce have provided physiotherapy with another window of opportunity and FCP fits into that window of opportunity quite quite nicely. So it's very so I'm aware my perspective is very physiocentric. I, I am a physiotherapist, um, and I think that physiotherapists are well placed to take up this mantle. I think that because of the the, the savviness of physiotherapy over the last hundred years, we are recognized as a very well-established profession more so than a lot of other 
sort of allied or sort of adjunctive um, professions and certainly musculoskeletal professions. So we're well positioned to sort of realise this opportunity. And I think, Jack, you know, you know, I've heard you speak in the past about, you know, if we as a profession don't realise this opportunity, there will be other professions who do. And, you know, we've got the emergence and the increase in sports therapy courses and degrees, post and pre and postgraduate degrees, you know, providing rehabilitative services. You know, I think as a, as, a, as a profession, we just need to be cognizant of the opportunities that are available for us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's difficult for me to, to because I've not really been exposed in the same way as you have. In, in the work that you've been doing about trying to bring MSK professions together. So I'm aware that my sort of perspective is very sort of physiocentric. Um, uh, it's a funny one because I'm, I've been, one of the things that, that is the caveat I place is that it's open access based on the fact that we should all be reading a similar evidence base. However, I, I'm unapologetic about some of my physiocentricity on a pragmatic level with regards to workforce. Let, let's, not, let's not pretend there's suddenly strength and conditioning coaches or, or psychologists who can work in pain management or great functional scaled OTs, for example. It, it just isn't that workforce. So let's not be silly about the fact. That, so it's more about the fact that accessibility and the fact that those distinctions can sometimes melt away when we're reading from the same evidence base and that there may well be no difference if I'm working shoulder to shoulder with a contemporary chiropractor it's something that shouldn't matter however what is what is fascinating for me and why I often challenge our profession on this is that if if you're making claims of a relevant distinction there if you if, if some of the the um the public's perception and the established nature of what people perceive as going to see a physiotherapist meaning. I just want us to make sure that there's something credible more than just rhetoric there, right? I want it to, us to be able to walk the walk. I want us to have some governance framework, some competency framework, some career infrastructure of which we can therefore justify those claims rather than at the moment. I think there's a complacency that sets in. There's that word again. Maybe I'm paranoid about complacency of all flavors, but it's just that back it up with something you know i'm kind of just irritated by my own career progression my last nhs post i had which unfortunately i got down to two days and i just got squeezed out from my many hats i wear but i was working as an AA um, advanced practitioner within staffordshire and i was irritated at how that was a series of good job interviews and hopefully you know justified under a good supervised structure so i didn't feel as much of an imposter as maybe i perhaps should have done but generally speaking it kind of it annoyed me that I was somewhat unchecked. It kind of annoyed me that there was no appropriate career infrastructure that could then mean that when I am working truly shoulder to shoulder with an MSK doctor and we are behaving as peers and, and you take one, I'll take one, which is I know something that, that uh, you guys had, had done years before at CityCare. It, it was something somewhat of an irritant that, that, that the rhetoric of what physiotherapy is and could be, which, of which much of which I, I feel like is, is rec- I can recognise, I kind of just felt like, well, why aren't we backing that up? We're just not taking the opportunity to. There's so many skeletons that, that, that are in the closet there that when we then come to talk about them, and we've sort of mentioned a few of them, you and I sound like her- are accused of being almost heretics for unearthing that dirty laundry. Whereas that's something that I just feel like, well, let's just grow up a little bit because the opportunity is huge. The patients love it. The, the actual it is credible. But it's something that just needs that bit more support, a bit more thoughtful conversation. So anyway, I'm I'm, I'm ranting a little bit there. But no, no, no. I think I think I'd, I think it's really interesting, Jack. What you're saying, I would like to comment. And I think that 
you know, you know, obviously what what will hopefully go a really long way to provide some of that reassurance that you're seeking is the is the HEE roadmap. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, that that's fantastic. As a as an MSK framework, I think it would be good to see that same MSK framework for band six and band five physiotherapists. So you've got so you've got that real clear roadmap from start start through to finish, not just at this higher level. And that might be something we see see down the line. But I also think that, you know, as I said, I'm a physiotherapist. My only experience is working as a physiotherapist. And I'm just sometimes a little bit concerned that we undermine those local competency frameworks. We undermine that process of interview um, and recruitment ourselves. And I think that's right that we hold a mirror up and we ask those questions. But at the same time, we have to be sort of careful. We're not just undermining it for the sake of undermining it. In the same way as we have to be careful of not overinflating other people's frameworks. Now, I've no ex- I've no experience firsthand of going through the revalidation process as a doctor. Okay, I know what my own um, PDR is like each year, so I can only comment from a first-hand experience of that. I just wonder whether if I'd had twenty years of going through revalidation as a as a nurse or as a medic, I might feel similarly about that process as you have described and perhaps I sometimes feel about my revalidation which is you know cursory or none at all but my PDR and my my objectives and my sort of um, local sort of maintenance of my competency and my local assessment of my um, my sort of um, ability to do the job that I'm doing and I think that's just something we need to we need to just be sort of maybe keep an eye on as well because I think that you know my experience is that talking to people you know the doctors who I talk to repeatedly say oh my god the physiotherapists are so much better (laughs) at assessing somebody with a musculoskeletal problem so whatever sort of systems we've got in place at the moment and it may be that they're blinded by uh, by ignorance, um, but it, you know, on the face of the evidence that I've got, whatever systems we've got in the, at the moment seem to be doing okay. And that's not to say that you know, you know, getting getting this roadmap rolled out isn't isn't absolutely the right thing to do. And as I say, I'd like to see that for all levels of musculoskeletal physiotherapy. I think the other thing to say is that one of the things that really interested me. Um, in my PhD in this work was the expectation of some um, interprofessional um, rhetoric and and discourse mm. and to some extent because you know when in 2015 um, Karen Middleton had a piece in Pulse I think it was she had a piece on the BBC news website about first contact physiotherapy at that time, the the sort of the narrative was very much around unburdening GPs, and that's changed a lot since that time. But some of the responses from the RCG, RCGP and the BMA were really, really quite critical. So I went into this with a bit of an expectation that there might be a little bit of um, upset, and and there wasn't at all really, or very, very little overt GP dissatisfaction with FCP. When you speak to them, they're overwhelmingly positive about it. 
they might not be using it properly. They might be sending the patients out their room to go and book an appointment with the FCP. So, you know, whether that's, mm. whether that hides something. But at the same time, as you've said, the GPs had, a, had their business owners and they would repeatedly say the book stops with me. If something goes wrong, if this physiotherapist does something wrong, if this nurse does something wrong, the book stops with me. And they were really aware of the responsibility that they had um, for their general practice, which, you know, was something that I wasn't uh, wasn't aware of. But also, again, more covertly, and I've not really picked this up most recently in the last last sort of eight to 12 months. But in the early days, GPs would say things like, um, and this was before a lot of physiotherapists had, you know, access for diagnostic referrals and things like that. They would make a request for an MRI scan. I'd read through the request and, you know, I'd send off the ones that I thought were appropriate and I wouldn't send off the ones that I didn't. So there was almost, I, I, I sort of coined the phrase at the end of my PhD of this unconscious medical dominance, which I don't think they were necessarily, GPs were necessarily aware that they were exercising their dominance hierarchically within, mm. within the, but I think that they, they, they were doing on, on occasion. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's a challenge for us as an, you know, allied health professional, we're allied to medicine. Um, I think that's often how, how, you know, some, some people in the profession see us still allied to medicine. And I think that's something that we need to step up to um, and and challenge if we see it. I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I think with a couple of a couple of things there, because you've spoken to two really credible and, and primary concerns that people have over some of what I've talked about about the interprofessional counter tribal blurring of the lines sometimes between MSK disciplines. The, the first one being that sometimes you romanticize or over glamorize other people's frameworks and competency. And I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the things admittedly we did is that instead of our perception, we really did the reading. You know, we had to be reading job descriptions and going through it and even sitting some, um, although fortunately I didn't have to submit them, but sitting some exams of which my GPs with special interest counterparts would have needed to do in terms of trying to understand the thresholds of which they did in order to then work shoulder to shoulder. And it's the more the case that I think I'd love to be able to say that my observations aren't similar to yours in terms of the fact that physio- a lot of doctors say defer to physiotherapists, especially those that are more um, long in the tooth. They're just interested in the fact that much sooner someone saw them. In fact, they would consult a physiotherapist for their sore knee than they would a colleague or themselves. So they, they kind of get that. But let's just back that up then. That's all I'm kind of suggesting. It's not as if I'm inferring that actually that process would only unveil us to be incompetent. No, it'd be more the fact that why don't we then do that? Why don't we why don't we test ourselves in that way? Of which, of course, the roadmap helps us to do as well as the new exam that we're championing as well through the um, what am I saying? The um, hopeful. Uh, aspiring Royal College of, uh, of uh, Sports and Exercise Medical Medicine come, come MSK. But I suppose the other thing is that do we sometimes therefore talk down or overanalyze our own professional standards? And I think that that's the, the thing that I find interesting is that based on what you've been describing, the process in which we then sometimes are vulnerable to that unconscious medical dominance is that to some extent, it irritates me that they've got, some, they've got a leg to stand on in the fact that we are otherwise ungoverned. The fact that we're otherwise unchecked, the fact that we self-certify under the HCPC, the fact that the fact that uh, our GP counterparts have at least been examined on it, you could criticise as I plenty do their exam, but generally speaking, especially your um, consultant sports and exercise medics, come MSK doctors as we know them, 
to some extent, the argument that any given individual might not be as good as any given physiotherapist is, is, is less important to me in terms of the, the actual governance standards and thresholds of which they've met. So let's, if we're suggesting, and, and rightly so, I think I agree with your point that, that we are, we're right up there, just prove it. It's not, it's, that's kind of what I'm meaning. It's more than, rather than saying that, oh, it would be a really re- massively revealing moment if we did do that i think it would only shine us in good light but i just think that it's not it's not accidental that we haven't i think that to some extent it has been convenient for us to otherwise been you know people have been been incredibly surprised at the fact in the public especially with our patients that we consulted within mskr's work were so surprised to hear that following graduation of an undergraduate regardless you know unless you voluntarily put yourself through further study of which you and many others have then you, you otherwise see your career out at that level, call yourself chartered, call yourself advanced, call yourself consultant. That fascinated people. And I think that speaks to that public perception thing that obviously I'm loving your work. And I think that that it adds the credibility and robustness to the things that are your, your PhD speaks to the fact that the, how well-placed physiotherapists are to take this on. It's just that you undermine yourself by just not doing the due diligence almost underneath it. So I hope that unpacks a little bit more of my thoughts on it. And hopefully you can see why it's so supportive of, of, of your conclusions to your PhD. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And as I say, I think at the moment, you know, my experience and involvement extends to the roadmap. And I think that, that that's a fantastic framework mm. to sort of provide that validation for MSK physiotherapists working in, in primary care or general practice. So I think I think that, that that's that's um, that's that's um, that's a great step forwards. Um, yeah, so that's good. Do you see the? Um, let's bring this to a close by getting your take on where you see the. Um, the I, I want to question your optimism for the future of FCP physiotherapy, the MSK industry, and the UK healthcare in this sphere. Do you see that as being? You know, how optimistic are you for that? And how has that changed from your pursuit of this study? Um, I, I think I'm optimistic by nature. Um, so I'm optimistic that that this will continue. There seems to be some momentum around FCP. Um, so so I suppose fundamentally my headline is I'm optimistic. Um, I you know we've touched on some some concerns and some cautions already, and you know there are some that I that I have I think that as a profession we need to be clear about where we see this agenda going for me that is the agenda becoming broader for you know whatever you want to call it think physio or physio first or you know you know MSK physiotherapists becoming the the first point of contact default for people who wake up with an MSK problem I've said that lots of times before so you know, I think that if that's if that's the vision that we have as a profession, then that's going to take some really much broader thinking and planning about how we take the agenda agenda forwards. I think that we are incredibly well and fortunately positioned to seize that challenge because of the the sort of the acknowledgement that the public have and recognition that public have as physiotherapists and physiotherapy as a profession. So we're starting from a really advantageous position. 
to be able to sort of seize that seize that challenge. So that would be my sort of vision. But that that's that's not FCP. That's physiotherapy that extends beyond FCP. But mm-hmm. that you know, as I say, that there's definitely some some broader thinking that we need to do professionally if we're going to achieve that. That seems relevant. And um, what, what you struggle to make that distinction in part because you you see them as being so intrinsically linked. The FCP you struggle to for the reasons we've talked about see it as being relevantly distinct from the wider professional. Um, what did you call it? Professional project. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, and I, I think at one point I I was more concerned. You know, I could almost see that there was a uh, an agenda for professionalizing you know fcp outside of physiotherapy you know it almost felt like you know physiotherapists who are in these roles didn't like using the word physiotherapy they called themselves advanced practitioners or musculoskeletal practitioners Um, and i think that the the strongest public's marketing point that we've got is the word physiotherapy because that's recognizable you know advanced musculoskeletal practitioner means even less you know if we think Mm -hmm. that People are somewhat confused about what physiotherapists do. They'd have no idea what that meant. So, you know, that in a way, I'm, I'm glad that that's changed to um, FCP. We're a little bit fortunate that, you know, P actually stands for practitioner, but, you know, we can replace it with physiotherapist, um, first contact physiotherapist. Um, so, yeah, so at one point I was a little bit anxious that, you know, it was going almost going to be some sort of a, an, an identity in its own in its own right. But that doesn't seem to be the case now. I think that more broadly from, you know, what you call um, MSK industry, I think that what I was going to say around, you know, working alongside GPs and and professional protectionism and, and the lack of it is that when you work with people, if you go into it with a bit of a protectionist attitude, what I found is very, very quickly that drops away. And, you know, you know, the, you know, sometimes I've gone into thinking, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure that I'm comfortable working with, for example, this pain consultant. And when you get in the clinic room, what you realize is that very often, more often than not, your agendas are the same. And, and I think that that exposure to that multidisciplinary working is only advantageous. And, um, you know, I, I think the work that you're doing in, in terms of pulling the MSK industry as a wider body together is 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 really great because I think that that all that will do is break down boundaries um, and barriers um, and I think that's really important um, not necessarily for first contact but I think for the MSK um, what you call it MSK industry. Yeah. I think that that's that's really heartening to hear and I think one of the things that we've concluded on a, a sort of for me, it'd be almost like uh, a far from academic, but almost sociological part of that is that they don't. We don't feel like those professional badges are necessarily the primary identity compared to being a healthcare provider that's aspiring to deliver best care for that patient. That's one of the reasons it melts away. Um, even when people have got quite a large chip on their shoulder and they think that 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 is really relevant, it does melt away in part because you, you shoulder to shoulder with someone that's just so aspiring to do the best for the patients, and 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 that is the primary identity in that context and that, that matters more and so that cuts through far better so I'm, I'm, I'm pleased we've come to similar conclusions there I can't help but ask did that optimism that you're describing wax or wane or change from the pursuit of the study so as you studied this stuff more did that therefore make you any more or less or did it just stay the same 
throughout that? I, yeah, yeah. I think it's fluctuated, Jack, massively. You know, <laughs> right. we we had a massively, massively successful service across, as I said, 20 GP practices. The money was non-recurrent. Um, and when it came to the end of that contract, the money was pulled. So, you know, we had a service that we, we could demonstrate was really efficacious and well received across the board and it stopped overnight. So I think that that's the the sort of the reality of the world that we live in. Right. Um, and, you know, that's something, again, that as a profession, we need to be cognizant of in terms of securing a long term agenda for FCP. So, you know, things like that really brought my sort of optimism down. Um, I think recently some of the conversations I've had have really elevated my optimism again. And that's around really around what we spoke about earlier in terms of flexibility, Um, because I can see that, you know, physiotherapists providing first contact musculoskeletal health care for patients can be really variable. It can be variable in terms of geographical situation. It can be variable in terms of type of service delivery. And that variability is really, really exciting. Um, I think it requires, as I've said, us to let go of some of the rigidity in the FCP model. And you've alluded to that as well. But I think that those conversations you know, talking to physiotherapists in rural Scotland who've said the patients love it. They love the fact they've not got to travel for two hours, you know, because of yeah. what I've brought to the service. You know, the GPs love it. You know, it's it's so, it, you know, most physiotherapists, all physiotherapy services that have been embedded into GP practices have been overwhelmingly welcomed and mm-hmm. overwhel- the, the reports have been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. So, you know, again, I'd like to imagine, and this might be my naivety, that in 15, 20 years time, we're going to see a really diverse, flexible model of people accessing physiotherapy as a first point of contact. That would be my my sort of dream outcome for, for this initiative and agenda, really. Yeah. So that optimism, that optimism is still there. But without a doubt, there are still some challenges ahead, I'm sure. Absolutely. No, well, thank you for exploring that with me today. Really appreciate it. I think there's definitely some policy level stuff, especially with regards to why it is that characters such as yours and work such as yours doesn't directly influence policy, especially with your name in lights and some of the awards that you won last year. Kind of drives me crazy that, that, that services such as what you're describing would be pulled despite demonstrable outcomes is the messy nature of, of politics. And that's one for another day, certainly. Thank you so much again for your time. Just tell people where they can find out a little bit more about you and what direction that you would send people for that. Um, well, I try and avoid Twitter. Um, I have got a Twitter account, but I, I sort of logged on yesterday and had lots of notifications for me, bearing in mind I don't have many followers. Um, but I so don't send me anything via Twitter because it's unlikely that I'll respond to it very quickly. Um, you know, if people want to get in contact with me, probably what's best for them to do, Jack, rather than me sitting here and giving my email address over over this forum, is to is to sort of direct them to you. And I'm quite happy for you to direct people through to through to That's me. That's right. We'll 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 triage a bit of that for you because yeah, I think you would be yeah. and rightly so because your your work has been so pivotal on this. And Jack, just one thing I want. to to bring up you sort of said about you know somewhat frustrating that my work's not been you know perhaps um, incorporated in some policy 
to be fair, you know, probably the thing that makes me me proudest is the local service evaluation that we did that was published in 2015. You know, if you talk about research going from paper to practice taking 20 years, well, from a publication in 2015 to national policy in sort of three years is just remarkable. And the number of people who've said that in the conversations that they had with their commissioners, they took that paper. You know, that that's you know, that makes me incredibly proud. And, you know, the the CSP, as I say, have been really supportive of the work that I've done. So I would like to think that, and certainly with the national evaluation, they were just, you know, over the moon with the qualitative data. It just gives such, such rich information. And I'm doing interviews, as I've said at the moment, and I've been doing this for seven years, Jack, and every time I have a have a conversation with somebody, there's a couple of new nuggets that just go, oh, my gosh, this is just yeah. fascinating. It's just yeah. so, so rich. It's a, it's a fantastic methodology in terms of unearthing really, really rich and useful information. Absolutely. I think it's a great point and certainly something I should really qualify is for me, it's more that the, some of the the nuance to the to the conversation, like we've described it with regards to self-referral, how that maps onto FCP. I suppose that's the thing where it's almost like some of the je ne sais quoi that Rob Goodwin's brought to this, that, that thoughtful, rational analysis, but also with a recognition of the patient perspective. It's that that I feel like I'd love to see further influence the conversation, whereas you're absolutely right. The, the, the influence that you've had and your team's had in actually directing policy, that, it was, it, that separation is, is relevant. And I was, it was clumsy of me to not tease those apart because you have uh, been a great influence and continue to be. Uh, so thank you so much for, for all you've done. And, um, and definitely, I look forward to, to speaking again, hopefully in person over a beer. I want to make sure I put on record as well before we go. Uh, as a fellow twin dad, you've been a massive support for me there as well. Thank you for that. That's been brilliant. Just to give me the uh, pep talk I needed in the early days to say it gets easier. And so um, that's been a, that's been an interesting thing that we also share. Um, and so thank yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's an absolute pleasure, Jack. And it's you know one of the things that I do make a point of looking at on Twitter on the rare occasion. Look at it, see how how the boys are getting on. So um, you're doing really, it looks like you're doing really well. So yeah, enjoy that. They're, they're both still surviving. That's the key outcome measure that I'm using. At the <laughs> yeah, moment. But yeah, th- thanks yeah. so much as ever. And uh, we'll speak again soon. Okay, thanks, Jack. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Really appreciate Rob's time. Really enjoyed that episode and uh, great for, him to, for me to catch up with him, even in this circumstance where I had to then put a microphone under his nose. But yeah, really... Uh, one of the, one of the people that when I think back and, and and look at his work, especially since I've worked with him, is you know he's, we're just so lucky to have him. You know he's sort of a, a real unique talent and thinker uh, within the profession, and uh, we, you know he could turn his hand to many other things. And we're lucky to have him in MSK practice. So hope he continues to think in our direction and to continue to raise standards and and think carefully about these sorts of things where clinical practice overlaps with policy reform because it's an important thing that you know uh, I'm passionate about. Do check out uh, Rob's social media. He just, as he admits, he didn't doesn't use it often, but I'm sure he'd be open to some questions or get in touch via us. Just let us know, info at physio-matters.com uh, to get in touch. Remember to snap up your tickets, therapy-live.co.uk forward slash tickets, or just shop around on that website and you'll notice there's lots of uh, information about the speakers that have been announced and the programs and the streams, etc. So make sure you don't miss out on that. And as ever, thank you so much for uh, your feedback. 
it's amazing how much you guys as a network and a community sort of help us feed into what you're wanting in terms of episodes, content, style, um, really decent constructive feedback as well that we get as well as the hate mail. So I uh, really do enjoy that. This, is an epi- this episode is definitely testament to that. You wanted us to sort of get a, do a deep dive into FCP and I'm glad we were able to do that and couldn't think of anyone better uh, than Rob and I hope you uh, have enjoyed it too. So do let us know. All the best then and it leaves me great pleasure to have forgotten once again to get Rob to do the sign out so here I am instead you've been listening to the physio matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters bye for now